you do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. Media Group. This is the Lone Gunman Podcast. With your host, Rob Clark. Where research comes to shine and myths come to die. Stay tuned. show this is episode number 61 of the lone gunman podcast this is rob clark your boy at the helm of the ship today a special show for you i got a lone nutter coming back on the show and we're going to get into it today his name is scott maudsley maybe you've heard of him maybe you haven't but after this show you will definitely know who he is uh scott approached me after my uh, show with steve rowe um and was hoping for more of a difference of opinion. So that is what this show is going to be called. It's going to be called a difference of opinion because that's exactly what we have on this show. As you'll soon find out when it comes to many, many aspects of the case. Um, you know, it's just the way that the two different, two different people come at, come at the same thing from two different uh, viewpoints and uh, how we interpret the evidence and how we analyze the evidence and what it really means. Um, so I'm telling you, it's going to be a good show. It's a long one, the longest one I've done so far. It's a two-hour extravaganza, and I hope you enjoy it. I do have a, a, a new announcement um, over on the website, tlgpodcast.com. I finally have a donate button up on the episodes page. Should be right there at the top or right at the bottom if you're on the mobile version. Uh, you know, it's it, it, if you'd like to help me out, uh, you know, I always have audio issues, and which brings me to the this point. Thank you to Scott for recording this episode on his end and sending it to me. Uh, the quality you're going to hear is is much much better than normal. Um, so it's for things like that. You know, I. You know, I, I do this for free. I don't have a lot of extra money to put into this, you know, to make it sound more like a real radio show. You know, I've had a lot of people complain about the audio quality. Well, it's a podcast, okay? People, it's not it's not black op radio. It's not FM radio. It's, it's not even close to AM radio. You know, it is what it is. So, 
you know, if you'd like to help me out, you know, buy me a cup of coffee, whatever, every little bit helps. You know, there's a donate button. I think you can donate through PayPal or, or, or whatever you got there. Um, I would really appreciate it. Every penny will go to making this show better. I promise you. Um, but enough of that. TLGpodcast.com for that. Um, so anyway, here goes the show, people. I hope you enjoy it. Episode 61, A Difference of Opinion. What's up, everybody? This is your boy Rob Clark on the Lone Gumman Podcast, episode number 61. I have a very special guest today. His name is Scott Mosley. Uh, he's been interested in the case for a while. He is of the Lone Nut Persuasion. So, the Lone Nut that. Persuasion. Yeah. Now, um, now Scott's a good guy. He reached out to me um, after I had Steve Rowe on the show. Um, it wasn't combative enough for him. <laughs> so hopefully, uh, we're gonna we're gonna get into it a little bit better on this show. Um, anyway, welcome Scott to the show. How you doing, buddy? I'm good, buddy. I'm good. Thanks for having me on. No problem. No problem. And I remember uh, when I first met Scott. I think you mistook my my podcast uh, for a lone nut perspective, didn't you? No, actually, no. I uh, just watched, uh, listened to the uh, one episode, Nutter Island. So I didn't, I didn't think you were uh, a lone nutter yourself. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the name uh, fooled you there, and you're like, "What the hell is that?" I, I have thought about that though. I was like, you know what? If I were to do a lone nut podcast, the Lone Gunman podcast would be like a really good name for it. But I can't do that because Rob Clark already got to that one. That's right. Yeah. Hey, Way to be ahead money. of the game. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I get it all the time, man. People think, well, how oh, the name of your show, you know, you're just nothing but a lone nut, uh, or, you, or you're a, a fake conspiracy theorist, and I get it all the time. But uh, That's lame, dude. It's especially lame because it's like if you talk to the guy for like 10 seconds, you'll figure out that's not the case, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. All you got to do is listen to the show a little bit, and you'll pretty much know it real quick. Yeah, pretty much. Just look at the <laughs> titles of the episodes, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. You know, I, I really did like the Steve Rowe show. I had no idea that the guy was, like, old enough to have remembered those events and to have been there. He, like, the dude lived in Dallas. His mom worked at Parkland. That's so crazy, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I I didn't. I mean, I knew a little bit. I knew he was old enough, and he and he grew up there. But I didn't know his, about his mom working at Parkland. That's that's pretty interesting. And uh, you know, when I asked, because I always thought, you know, it, it's you know, you throw these labels on people like Lone Nutter, your conspiracy theorist, but there's there is a lot of different variations. Oh of, yeah, of conspiracy theorists and oh, yeah. nutters, it's, it's it's hard to group them in. You know what I'm saying? For sure, for sure. I really did enjoy the uh, Steve Rowe podcast, though. It, it wasn't necessarily that I felt it wasn't combative enough. It was just like you know, it's always nice to get like uh, testimonial accounts of things from people that were close to those events in time and place. You know what I mean? But it's like you guys didn't really get into discussing the case all that much. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, you know, he's from Texas, so it takes him a while to get around, <laughs> get get around to making his point. Um, but that's okay, you know. Yeah, you know. I enjoyed hearing about all that stuff too. You yeah, know, me too. Me too. You know, I talked to uh, 
um, Dennis David, who was who was president at uh, Bethesda when they when they received Kennedy's body there. And, you know, that was cool, too. You know, just an old dude that, you know, had ties to the case and, you know, just sharing his memories and not necessarily, you know, getting down to the nuts and bolts of, of the assassination, but just their experiences, you know, in general. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at this point in my life, I've pretty much – I'm in my early 30s, and it's like I've been interested in the Kennedy assassination for, like, more than 20 years, you know what I mean? So it's like I've – at this point in my life, I'm kind of, like, really, really interested in the Kennedy assassination as, like, a, a cultural experience here in North American society, you know what I mean? Yeah, well, what 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 initially piqued your interest in it? Well, I became interested in it years ago upon seeing uh, Oliver Stone's JFK. That's okay. a really, really good movie. It's actually probably my favorite movie now that I think about it. And it's like, you know, the, the cinematography, the narrative it weaves, it makes... It, it makes it seem like, oh, my goodness, this is such a crazy thing, you know? How could this have happened? It encourages you to want to, like, understand more, you know? Yeah, and but now I know a lot of the, the – a lot of people with the lone gunman perspective um, hate JFK because they feel it's not accurate at all. It's not. It's not. But it's like, what do you want? It's a Hollywood movie starring Kevin Costner and Tommy Lee Jones, you know? Like, it's – Nobody ever presented this saying, like, here's an accurate account of history. It's a fictional movie. Actually, Siskel and Ebert, when they reviewed it, uh, one of them made a really good point. He said, you know what you should have done? Instead of calling the character Jim Garrison, you should have called him, like, James Darrinson or something. And it would have signaled to the audience, okay, what you're about to see is, like, a fictionalized history, you know? It's like yeah. that movie Primary Colors with John Travolta, right? Like... He's playing this governor of a southern state, Jack Stanton, but really it's the story of Bill Clinton in the primary that he ran in, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Do something like that. But it's still a good movie, dude. I mean, if you don't know nothing about the Kennedy assassination or, like, the conspiratorial culture that surrounds it, I'd thoroughly recommend Oliver Stone's JFK. It's a good jumping-off point. Yeah, and, I mean, I, I think... You know, if if it wasn't for Jim Garrison doing what he did though back then, um, I, I I just don't see us having enough of the of the material that we have now. You know, I mean, like him or hate the guy, he stood up to, to the government, the CIA, he called him out, and he did what he could do. You know, yeah. You know, he was right or he was wrong. He did what he could do. And, you know, he got a lot of files released. He got a lot of eyes open and focused on the case. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, he was very good at courting the media and everything. Um, before we get into actually talking about the Kennedy assassination, I just wanted to, like, take a moment to talk about, like, kind of alternative versions of history in a kind of general context. If an event in history has, like, any real significance, there will be alternative explanations to that event other than the official one. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And it's like, name the event, and I will provide you the conspiratorial interpretation of that event. In the modern era, what's the biggest one? You know what I mean? In the modern yeah. era, the claim is, yeah, there you go. You know, 9-11 uh, was an inside job. But go back in history a little bit. Prior to 9-11, what else was an inside job? Uh, Princess Diana's death was an inside job. 
Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King, those are both inside jobs. Jack Kennedy, total inside job on that one. Pearl Harbor was an inside job. The stock market crash was an inside job. You know, there's always been people claiming that things have been inside jobs. You get what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So it's like, I think people kind of make this logical fallacy, the argument from popularity. Like, they look at the complicated conspiracy theorist culture that surrounds the Kennedy assassination, and they say, like, well, you know, 500 million Elvis fans can't be wrong, right? Like... It can't be that all of these people are interested in this thing and spend so much time and effort studying it and then there's nothing there, you know? Right. Like I, like I was telling Steve, you know, it wouldn't be like this if the Dallas police did their job, if the Warren Commission actually did something worth, you know, put, putting out there. I mean, because they, they just basically did a data dump, said, here you go, here's everything that we found out. Plop yeah. it in your lap, yeah. you figure it out. Well, like, yeah. I, I've read the 9-11 report. Have you ever read, like, a government report like that? Not the 9-11 report. I've read the uh, HSCA report and, of course, you know, the, well, the condensed version of the Warren report. I've yeah. not, I haven't down through the, all 26 volumes, but... Yeah, no, very few people have, I would imagine. Uh, but it's like if you've read government publications, you know that's how they are, right? They don't have good narrative flow. They're disjointed. It's stuff is all over the place. That's just how they they always do it as a data dump, you know? That's not necessarily unique to the Kennedy assassination, which kind of was the point I was trying to make in talking about alternative versions of history in a general sense. It's that just because a conspiracy theorist culture proliferates around the Kennedy assassination doesn't necessarily mean that that's the correct interpretation, just like any other event in history. You know what I mean? Like just because yeah. the Warren commission is like data dump poorly written doesn't necessarily mean that that's like unexpected. You know, that's just how government reporting is. They're not really authors, you know, like they don't know how to put it together nicer. Right. Right. No, I understand that. And you know, it's – I know – I think I was reading that uh, they did hire an author to write the condensed version of the, of the Warren – you know, the, the report on the Warren Commission, mm -hmm. you know, like the 800-page, you know, condensed version of events. Yeah. Um, and I forget his name right offhand, uh, and I forget what else he did. <laughs> <laughs> well, whatever. But it doesn't really matter anyway. It doesn't really matter, but you know that—that's who they had writing it. Um, I mean, it does matter in a way if, if you know, whatever his specialty was and what, whatever he had done in the past um, had any bearing on what he was doing then. But because a lot of that was written on the fly as they were going, you know, throughout that nine-month period. Yeah, yeah, totally. I and mean, I, there was many yeah. factors kind of contributing to why it was so rushed but at the same time you know they they pretty much got it you know they like interviewed enough people and looked at enough things i think to arrive at that conclusion i mean a nine-month investigation when you have the resources of a federal government can be like a pretty thorough investigation you know oh yeah i mean you know they even got his mother oswald's mother's dental records so. yeah <laughs> get the data yeah. But they, they, you know, they didn't ask certain people 
certain questions that mattered. Yeah, I mean, you know, we can always look back at it retroactively, knowing what we know from a modern perspective half a century later and say, okay, well, they should have said this, they should have said that. But I mean, in real life, they're very, you know, there's no should have been or ought to have been. There only is what is, you know, like history is what it is. Things happen the way they happen. The questions got asked, they didn't get asked. It's like we kind of have to still take all these things and try to piece together a working explanation, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, if if Oswald had lived, uh, you know, he would have went to trial and we wouldn't have have had a need for the Warren Commission. Yeah, yeah, totally. It would have just been probably prosecuted as like a state of Texas criminal offense, you know? Yeah. They had total jurisdiction on that one. But would he have been convicted? Yeah. That's the question. Yeah, he totally would have been convicted. You think? Oh, yeah, for sure, dude, for sure. I mean, I've mentioned this before, and, you know, nobody really likes it, but I'm going to mention it again. It's the London Weekend Television Trial, uh, the one with Bugliosi and Gary Spence. Right. And it's like, honestly, dude, that's as real as we could have ever made it. Real federal judge, real jury, really drawn from the Dallas roles. Vincent Bugliosi really is a district attorney. He really has prosecuted death penalty cases before. Gary Spence really is a defense attorney. He really has successfully defended criminal clients before. So it's like, it was the real witnesses. It wasn't an actress playing Ruth Payne. It was actually Ruth Payne, you know? So it's like... Boy, that's as real as they could have ever made it, you know? It's right. not like they could have made it more real. There was nothing else to do other than have, like, an actual real trial. Yeah, which they which they did, you know? Um, now, when it comes to actual evidence, um, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of problems with... with how the DPD handled it, how the FBI handled stuff. Um, you know, like the affidavits of Boone and Weitzman, would, you know, would that have made a difference in court? Well, here's the thing. Like, I don't really like to think of a perspective of how it might have gone down inside of a courtroom because in a courtroom, you're not really using the right criteria to arrive at the objective truth. You know what I'm getting at? It's like... In a court of law, you afford all the benefits of all the doubts to the accused, and it's like certain evidence might be ruled inadmissible. So in Oliver Stone's JFK, Kevin Costner as Jim Garrison makes a comment that goes, I've always wondered why it is in court that if a woman's a prostitute, that automatically means she has bad eyesight. And it's, you know, it's a joke about how you could potentially have a situation where a crime occurs and a person witnesses that crime, but because they happen to be a prostitute or something, they're not very credible. And even though there's an eyewitness to that crime, the jury in the courtroom may never hear about that. You know what I'm saying? So for me, it's not necessarily the issue of would we have found Oswald guilty? That's kind of irrelevant. It's more the question of did he actually do this or not? And that's, you know, where I think most of the focus should be. All right. Now, before before I talk to you, um, you know, I asked you to come up with some uh, a couple points that, that that we could address, and I came up with some too. And uh, you know, these are sticking points, I guess I guess you would call them, um, with both sides, really. 
Um, so if you want to, let's go ahead and address uh, your first point, Oswald's character and who he was as a person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, in order to understand any event, you have to kind of understand the people that are involved, like the primary actors in the story. And I mean, you look at Lee Harvey Oswald, like, who was this guy? Who was this guy as a person? What was his life like? What did he do? How did he think? How did he act about stuff? Uh, he was always kind of like this detached loner, you know what I mean? There's many factors that contribute to that. Who his mother was is uh, probably a big one. You know, uh, history kind of remembers Marguerite Oswald as being this cantankerous old lady that didn't get along with anybody ever. And it's like, if you're her kid, chances are you're going to turn out to be a somewhat similar character, right? The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. He lives a young life where he's disjointed, moved around from state to state, school to school, doesn't really finish his education, doesn't really make friends. In in his personal life as a young kid, he's already violent. You know, he's violent against his mother. He's violent occasionally against the other kids. He's a truant. He gets a psychological evaluation done. And the psychologist evaluating him says that he has, like, pattern personality disorder with schizoid features and passive aggressive tendencies the psychiatrist recommends that he receive care and that really it should be done on an outpatient basis that way he doesn't have to be removed from his home but if his mother isn't willing to get him the care that he needs they should really consider taking custody of him to put him in an institution you know what i mean so it's like at the time that Marguerite and Oswald, well, Marguerite and Lee, rather, leave New York State, they were actually considering doing that. So it's like, here you have a professional, a medical professional who diagnosed this kid and diagnosed, like, the symptoms that point the way to, like, a fundamental mental disorder. You know, in, in 1953, when Lee Oswald was diagnosed the science of psychiatry probably wasn't half of what it is today 50 years later you know what i mean like today we might have been able to diagnose him with all kinds of stuff antisocial personality disorder narcissistic personality disorder or like something like that some kind of autism or whatever and it's like it it it's within the last third of his life he gets the psych evaluation in 1953 and he's dead 10 years later in 1963. So I think it does provide an interesting glimpse into who this guy was as a person. In the Marines, he stands out. He's different. He doesn't really get along with very many people. He gets in trouble for violent acts. We all know that he was violent in his personal life against Marina. It's just like here you have this angry, violent guy who's pretty much been this emotionally detached loner his entire life. So it's like when people present Oswald as a lone nut shooter, that kind of looks like what I'm seeing here, you know? I don't think that that's some crazy misrepresentation of who Lee Harvey Oswald was as a person. Okay, now I'll counter you with this. Um, like you said, 1953, you know, psychological diagnosis, especially of a child who... Is, it, is at that time basically an only child with his mother, no father. Uh, he's in a strange place than he's used to, you know, different than where he grew up, you know, ripped away from his friends and his other family. You know, it, it's hard to diagnose 
at least for me, it would be hard to lay a diagnosis on this kid other than um, somebody who maybe is homesick, misses their friends and family, uh, wants attention more than what he's getting. You know, I just don't see this psychotic uh, diagnosis. So it's at such a young age as being anything more. And, and, you know, I talked to Greg Parker about that little knife incident there at John Pike's residence mm-hmm. with, and oh, that was blown out of proportion. Yeah. I mean, in the sensationalized atmosphere of a post Kennedy assassination world, you can easily understand how things like that could happen. Right. But it's like, even his mother in her testimony before the Warren commission, she tries to whitewash for him. You know, his mother, very much had this persecution complex and i think you know, lee probably had like a more watered down version of that and in her testimony to the warren commission she's like oh well you know it was a small knife it wasn't really like a big knife or anything and you know they they asked her about beating marina and she totally like tries to be an apologist and go oh well you know there's sometimes when a woman needs to have a black eye like can you imagine that dude can you imagine your mother like defending you giving your wife a black eye that's so crazy you know what i mean and that's how different back then yeah yeah like that's how oddball these people were you know they didn't really act like normal regular people and history kind of remembers that and when oswald received that psych evaluation it was in 1953 how old was he when he died 24 so he would have been 14 at the time or like 13 14 somewhere in that area so, I mean, when you're 14, your psychology and your psyche, I mean, I remember being 14. It was a lifetime ago, but, like, I still remember, you know, I was, like, consciously aware and interacting with the world around me. I was in high school when I was 14. So it's like by that time, your persona and your psyche are pretty well on their way to development, I would think. But ultimately, the truth is the person who diagnosed him was a medical professional, you know what I mean? They're the person who went to medical school. They're the person who got that title and demonstrated their proficiency. Like, I have no idea. I I can't retroactively diagnose Lee Harvey Oswald, but it's like the person who diagnosed him was a doctor, right? So, I mean, they're the ones that would know. And I think one of the things that have happened is in the last half a century, our society has grown up a lot. And unfortunately, we've had... uh, more Oswald-like people and JFK assassination-like incidents in our history. Uh, The world today is a lot more familiar with people who display like sociopathic tendencies and things than they ever were in 1963. And, you know, like, um, think about the backyard photos that Oswald took. He's dressed all in black. He's brandishing his weapons. He's brandishing some communist newspapers. Where else have we seen things like that? Who else have we seen doing things like that? All kinds of people, you know, like Eric Harris and Dylan Clayble, the shooters at Columbine. They went into the woods. They played their music. They dressed all in black. They brandished and fired their weapons. Uh, Daniel Cho, I think his name was, the shooter at Virginia Tech. He made a video before he went on a rampage railing against, you know, classism or whatever crazy nonsense he believed in. Again, dressed in black, again, brandishing his weapons. In the 50 years since Kennedy has been assassinated, we've seen other Lee Harvey Oswald type people, and they all kind of display this kind of similar type of passable, watered down sociopathy. You know what I mean? 
I think Lee Harvey Oswald was like a low-grade sociopath. That's how I pretty much see him. Well, when you go back, I mean, he he actually did have a better shot at life than his brothers, who did spend a lot more time in the orphanage than he did, um, and off at these little special schools. And, you know, I think at least in New Orleans, um, with the Moret family around, you know, that I think they were really important to Lee. And, you know, even as even as late as the summer of 63, you know, they were spending a lot of time together. They accompanied uh, Lee to what was it? Alabama, was it Alabama? To speak I'm not at that, sure. Oh, the, at, the school that he gave a speech to. Yeah, I think the, the Jesuit school there. Yeah. Maybe it was Louisiana. I'm not sure. No, it was. I think it was Alabama. Okay. I, I know they left the state to do it, and it was, a, you know, it was a, it was a family adventure. They had the Morettes, and uh, you know, the whole Oswald family, and that most of the Moret family, they all went to, you know, support Lee and hear him speak. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think that his his I don't think that the guy was like a total nutcase, you know what I mean? Like, obviously, he was capable of functioning in society, you know? But it's just, like, I'm sure he had good times with his family occasionally, but he did have a disjointed family life, you know? His brothers weren't there a lot of the time. He didn't have a father, like we've already talked about. All these things, I think, contributed negatively to his personality and who he was as a person, you know? It's just, like, he goes to the Soviet Union... He gets married to this woman. He has a kid with her. And then when he decides, you know what? I don't want to deal with this no more. I'm going to go back home. He's going to take her with him. Like, it, it doesn't seem to me like there was any consideration of, you know, this lady's leaving her home. She's leaving the only life she's ever known. She's leaving her friends. She's leaving her family. She's going to go to a strange land where she doesn't even speak the language. And she's totally isolated, totally dependent on him. And in that situation, what did he try to do with his relationship with her? He tried his best to keep her isolated, to keep her dependent on him. She did. He didn't want her to learn English. He would physically abuse her, you know, like. All, all the signs point to this guy being a violent person. If somebody, ha- if somebody asked me, Lee Harvey Oswald, was he a violent person or a non-violent person? I would say that guy was a violent person. Well, it's a big, it's a big leap from somebody uh, laying their hands on their wife a couple times to, you know, assassinating the president, though. You know, I mean, it's... oh yeah, I mean, it's definitely not the same thing exactly, but I mean, it shows a predisposition to use physical violence, right? I mean, it shows that you're not above doing such things, you know? You're not above punching your wife. If you can be violent and be physically aggressive to the people that are closest to you, why couldn't you do it towards some kind of, like, disembodied authority figure? Well, true. I mean, but I think I think anybody, really, if, if they're pushed hard enough, you know, is capable of doing something like that. I mean, not that, that we all would, but... No, definitely. I mean, everybody in their life gets, like, into scraps as kids or, you know, maybe has a violent incident here and there in their life. But what I'm saying is, like, 
this guy had a prolonged history of violence and when we look we can go back and find instances of that from his earliest days whether it was slapping his mother or chasing his sister-in-law or however exaggerated that incident may be or you know beating his wife or the incidents in the marine corps like at every stage in his life there's violent episodes maybe or was it for attention or you know at least in the marine corps I don't well, know. It's, the attention he got in the Marine Corps for his violence was uh, extremely negative. He was in the brig, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, I mean, even if it was for attention, again, that's like pure sociopathy, dude. You're getting violent because you want attention, and you don't care how you get that attention by acting good, by acting bad, by acting out. You know, all that matters is that you get attention and you get recognition, right? Doesn't that go a long way towards explaining why Oswald did what he did? True. Which brings us to one of my points. Okay. And let's see. I wrote I wrote all these down here. But um, it is the defection mm-hmm. to Russia. Mm-hmm. How could that be anything other than an intelligence operation because it doesn't make sense for it to be an intelligence operation sure it does no why what, what's he doing what's his intelligence gathering mission okay here you go all right here we go here you go all right okay i've seen i've seen uh let's see documents uh with cia code names for for operations uh that they've done red skin, red socks. Mm-hmm. And these were done by the CIA. Like, in a, order to, like a false to, defection program. Yeah. Yeah. False defective program to get people into the country and to see just how far they could go. Um, not necessarily, you know, maybe offer them out as a dangle for, to Soviet intelligence to try to, uh, you know, turn them. Um, it could have been just, you know, See if you can get over there. See if you can get in. See how long you can stay. You know, reconnaissance. You know, tell us what you see. Stay as long as you can, and then get out. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's like spy versus spy in Mad Magazine, right? There's the black spies and the white spies, and the white spies, everybody knows about them. They're in the country legally. They've got like a student visa or a diplomatic cover, and they're not doing anything like covert. You know, they're just like talking to people on the street, reading the newspaper, living in society, and then typing up their report. And that's totally fine, right? Everybody knows about the white spies, but then you also have the black spies, and the black spies are like covert. You know, like they show up with a fake identity, and they're there to do like something sinister or recruit people or infiltrate their intelligence network or whatever. So it's like, I just don't understand how Lee Harvey Oswald could have been either of these things. You know what I mean? Like he shows up in the Soviet Union with his real ID using his real name. He, you know, tries to be, tries to play it cool about wanting to stay in the country. But when he doesn't get what he wants, he throws this big scene at his embassy where, you know, if anybody who knows anything, you should assume that the American embassy in Moscow is like wiretapped eight ways from Sunday and everybody's hearing this big scene that you're making, including like the Soviet security services, the KGB and whoever else. And it's just like, what kind of spy would act like that? You know what I mean? 
he had a diary that he kept with him and when he found out that he had to leave the country he's like oh i decided to end it you know like i i think that's a big issue with the claim that oswald was an intelligence operative in the soviet union that guy tried to kill himself dude he tried to kill himself man and how was it that they found him his tour guide was supposed to meet up with him to take him to somewhere and she was like, oh, he's late. I'm going to go talk to the hotel staff and get them to open the room. And when she goes into the bathroom, she finds him unconscious in the bathtub filled with blood. You know, the guy's trying to kill himself. The doctors at the hospital felt that his suicide attempt was a legitimate attempt. Like, what would have happened if she had said, oh, you know, he's late. I'll just give him another 15 minutes. Or, uh, he's late. Maybe he decided not to come. I'll just check in on him tomorrow. That guy would have died. So I don't really see how, what part of the mission was that, you know, the part where you slit your wrist in a bathtub at the Metropole. Yeah, but it worked, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, get, get a little gold star in your file for that one. That's right. Yeah, get a medal on the down low, you know what I'm saying? Buddy slit his wrist to convince them. And he, like, really did slit his wrist, like... The doctors really did think that he tried to kill himself. I, I don't think it was that deep. Um, I don't know, man. I mean, if if you've lost enough blood to lose consciousness in water, you've probably you know, lost, like, a significant amount of blood, you know? I mean, he could just been laying there with his eyes closed, you know, pretending. Who knows? Yeah, <laughs> but he was a bit of a drama queen, let's be real. I mean, he made it, so. Yeah, yeah. Gotta uh, give and, him that. A lot of people live through slitting their wrists. That's true. Um, so, but it's hard to say, you know. No, I just um, I I can't really plug that into like a logical narrative. You know what I mean? I don't understand why they would do that, or even if they were doing that, why Oswald would behave the way that he did. You know, I mean. Well, I with, know that Joan Bellin had uncovered that 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 he was uh, debriefed. On his return from Russia, he was sat in a room. He was given a map of Minsk or wherever the hell it was, and and told to you know okay, plot on here everything you can remember. Um, you know he had taken pictures while he was over there. Um, you know things like that. Tell us what you know what you know. Blah blah blah. Nothing major. You know just uh, you know he wasn't taken to CIA headquarters or anything. He was just debriefed. Yeah. But that's to be expected, you know what I mean? In a situation like that... They should have locked his ass up. Well, I mean... you look at Well, like, you look at the diplomatic cable from... um, Who was it? Richard Snyder, the American ambassador to the Soviet Union. He's got his relatives stateside making waves with their elected officials trying to expedite his return. You know, if you want to get, like, crazy technical about it, he didn't really renounces citizenship he just put on a big drama queen performance and threw down his passport but in the diplomatic cables that snyder sends back to the state department in washington he says you know what honestly i think this is just a stupid young kid who made a stupid young kid mistake the reality of living in the soviet union has had a maturing effect on this guy and we should let him back you know so it's like maybe he should have been prosecuted or whatever, but I mean the truth was he didn't go AWOL, and he could always, you know, people that are like very, you know, sociopathic like that, they're very slippery, you know what I mean? They always they always kind of leave themselves a little wiggle room to say, oh, well, I didn't say that, I said this, you know? 
So it's like he could always make the argument that, no, I just made some anti-American statements. I didn't really renounce my citizenship. Yeah, and he did it on a Saturday when it didn't count. So. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, I mean, I'm not sure about the legal technicalities of it, but it's like if you're a naturally born American citizen, you can show up at an American embassy in some other country and make a big scene and throw down your passport. But I don't know if that has any, like, legal effect, you know? Yeah, and what else bothered me, you know, is that he got this he, – he got his uh, discharge, you know, at a very, very quickly. Um, and I'm sure – I've never seen any proof that Marguerite had ever injured herself so badly she needed her son to come home from the Marine Corps to take care of her. No, she she didn't. She faked an injury and got a doctor to sign off on that so that she can enable her son the same way that she always enabled her son. He wanted out of the Marine Corps and he, you know, kind of went crying to his mom about it and she did something about it. Sorry, just before we get off the topic of Oswald in Russia, well, I mean, I don't think we're going to get off the topic of it, like, immediately. I just want to make a quick point. Look at the correspondence between Oswald and the State Department when he's trying to immigrate back to the United States. He's telling them, okay, you know what, I'll come back to the United States under these conditions. And he's like, one of them is that I don't receive any criminal penalty for anything I might have done. And it's like, if this guy were an operative of the government, why would he be doing things like that? You know, like, why would they be having this kind of relationship with the ambassador? When somebody's in a country to spy, the last place that person goes to is their own country's embassy, unless it's, like, all gone wrong and you're, like, running from a hit team or something, you know? Even then, you probably still shouldn't go to the embassy because that's really bait out. But well, what, if he didn't even, what if he didn't even know he was a spy? What if, the, what if he was just... Then he would be a pretty ineffective spy if he didn't even know he was supposed to be spying. You know what I mean? I told him, you know, that, look, you know, we're going to we need you to do this. You know, we know you've been taking Russian. Look, we're going to we're going to send you into Russia. Try to get you to stay there because the route he took, Scott, I mean, it was it was a long circuitous route. Yeah. You know, around the world for this, you know. He didn't go around the world. He went across the Atlantic to Europe and then from Europe to Scandinavia and then from Scandinavia to the Soviet Union, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I think he went through Finland. Um, but he knew the the right, correct route. It's not like you can show up at the border and be like, all right, let me in. You know, yeah. he went through all the charade of the Albert Schweitzer College yeah. And, yeah. and all this crap. I mean, I just don't see how he could have done that on his own figured all that out, you know, and so efficiently planned to get there and execute it and get within, get into Russia, you know, within a very short period of time. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's actually a really good point. But I mean, the same thing, it's like, if, if we don't understand something, then the best we could really do is say, we don't understand it. You know, you can't really go like, conjecturing about possible conclusions you know maybe he got into russia so easily because he was on an intelligence operation they already had this entry plan ready for him and they're like okay you're going to go here then you're going to go to there then you're going to go to this council then you're going to get your visa you know and then you're going to cross in by train but i mean he might have you know lee, Har lee harvey oswald was not the smartest guy but he also wasn't like 
necessarily a bumbling incompetent either you know what i mean the guy read a lot he was knowledgeable about world affairs and things like that he might have had kind of weird and you know a bit eccentric views regarding those things but at the same time it's entirely possible that he just read somewhere that if you're a tourist going into russia this is probably the easiest way to do it is by making a land crossing through finland and actually the soviet union did have tourism right like even in the height of the cold war it was possible to go to the soviet union as a tourist ruth Payne and her church group were thinking about doing that and other people had done it like cultural exchange and stuff like that it wasn't you know a significant number of people or like happening all the time but it was possible yeah but it wasn't a long-term stay like he was doing either that you know it was just a week or two and then yeah. you get the hell out and we're watching the whole time you're here <laughs> yeah yeah pretty much yeah it's like traveling to north korea is today i would imagine but i mean it still was possible you know what i mean there's yeah. there's always going to be unknowns and uncertainties about any complicated thing in real life you know we can always sit there and say well what about this what about that how did he know this how did we know that you know like who knows dude who knows and don't forget his Freudian slip when he was on the radio down there in New Orleans. You, you know what I'm talking about? No. Uh, yeah, he was being interviewed on the radio when he was down there in New Orleans. Latin and, uh, listening post, that one? Yeah. Okay. Yep. And he kind of let slip that he was under the – he says, I was under the protection of the State Department in, in Russia. And then he went back and he said something different. Yeah, I mean, people uh, – uh, honestly, it's just like I don't think you should view that as him. If he actually were a State Department asset, would he be on the radio being like, well, I was under the protection of the State Department, you know, just like how his mother exaggerates things to kind of puff up her end of it. I think Oswald did similar things like that, too. He was in contact with the State Department, but he wasn't under their protection, you know. And I mean, yeah. if he really was under their protection, he probably wouldn't be talking about it on the radio. And, you know, you got the fact that he's stationed at Atsugi, which is a, a big CIA outpost. In, oh, yeah. In the, uh, yeah. And, you know, it just happens to house the U-2 spy planes, which one just happens to, they, you know, the Russians happen to bring one down while he's there. Yeah. Well, it's like yeah. um, the Russian SA-2 surface-to-air missile system. That's the weapon system that brought down Francis Powers U-2 over Soviet Central Russia. It happened like, I think, six months or so after Oswald arrives in the Soviet Union. So it's like, let's say he did have technical knowledge that he could have given the Soviets that would have allowed them to, I don't know, upgrade their equipment or whatever to hit the U-2. He, if he had given them that information like on day one you know is six months really enough time to break that down and apply it in practical application in the field you know maybe maybe not but the truth is i think the soviet sa2 system was just capable of engaging targets at that altitude you know it was the cold war there was a, an arms race you make a plane that can fly higher than the missiles i have right now i gotta make better missiles you know what i'm saying yeah. that that same surface-to-air missile system the sa2 that's the missile system that brought down Rudolf Anderson's U-2 over San Cristobal during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And the same week that guy got shot down, another U-2 got shot down in China over one of their nuclear test sites at Lopnor. Another U-2, again, by a Soviet SA-2 system. So I think it was just that they were capable. I mean, 
they must have been tracing those flights into their airspace for a while before they decided, okay, you know what, let's bring one of these things down and see what it is. Yeah. All right, well, let's let's move on here out of Russia, and let's get to uh, one of your other points here. Uh, Oswald's odd behavior leading up to and after the assassination. Yeah, uh, I think um, we all have this kind of pattern in our lives. You know, we have our days on, we have our days off, we have our times when we're supposed to be at work, times when we're supposed to be doing other things, and it's the daily grind, right? Day in, day out, you do pretty much the same things over and over and over again, and people are who they are, so they become creatures of habit, whether they realize it or not. We all do this in our normal, personal, everyday, ordinary lives. I think that when you're seeing people make deviations from that, it usually indicates that there's something extraordinary going on in their life, whatever that might be. You know, maybe they're like in a relationship with somebody or they just made a new friend or they started a new job or, you know, they've got something more going on in their life. Like Oswald goes out to the Ruth Payne house on Thursday, but normally he goes out on Friday and it's just like that's kind of odd. You know what I mean? Like, why are you breaking this pattern? Why are you going out? on a day that you don't normally go out on and it's like on the day of the assassination he's he's talking to people at work he's like oh what's all these people doing outside and yeah they're waiting for the president oh the president's coming by today it's like this guy is a highly politically oriented individual he had a discussion about this with his wife the night before like he obviously knows the president's coming by today but he's trying to lay the foundation you know so that later on he can be like oh golly gee i didn't know anything about anything and then after the assassination he's definitely behaving odd you know what i mean like a a history making moment takes place right outside of your workplace some of the people you work with witnessed it you're an extremely political oriented individual you don't stop to talk to anybody you don't stop to say two words to anybody you don't stop to mention to your boss hey i'm taking off for the rest of the day you just dip out in the middle of the day and go to catch a bus and when the bus isn't moving you take a cab you know like this is all very weird you know then he gets his gun and he goes to the movies oh i'm just gonna grab my gun and go into a movie theater halfway through a movie you know like this is all very odd behavior all right, well, to go back a little bit, I thought Ruth Payne had, had had made it clear that she didn't want Lee there that weekend because it was her kid's birthday that weekend, and they were going to have a party for her kid and didn't want him around that weekend. Well, maybe that was the case, but it's just like, even if that were, why would you go out on the Thursday, you know what I mean? I mean, is it just a coincidence that he broke his pattern and went out on the day before the president got shot, like... He has a weapon, and it's in Ruth Payne's garage, and the next day that weapon's at his workplace, you know? So it's like, are those things not related? Well, don't you think he would have got it out of there before the day before the assassination if, you know you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, yeah. Maybe. Planning better? Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe he should have planned it better. But again, you know, like things happen the way they happened, you know, maybe because he knew that maybe because he knew that Ruth Payne didn't want him out there on the weekend. He had to get it before. So the earliest he could have found out about this was like, what, Tuesday, Wednesday, that he'd have the opportunity to do this. So he'd have to, you know, commit to doing that inside of his own mind at some point or another. And then maybe by the time he was like, 
got himself fired up enough and was like, okay, I'm, I'm seriously going to do this thing. There was not enough time and he had to go out on Thursday to get it. All right. Which brings me to one of my points. What was his motive for killing Kennedy? What, you know, what, what was Oswald thinking? Yeah. Um, you know, like I was kind of talking about earlier, our society today, 50 years later, we have a lot more collective experience with people who exhibit like sociopathic tendencies and act out in ways like that. I mean, you can look at the example of any like high profile murder, you know, look at Lee Harvey Oswald. What was his motive for killing Kennedy? Honestly, it was probably something along the same lines as Mark David Chapman's motive for killing John Lennon or Eric Harris and Dylan Claybold's motive for shooting up their high school. You know, the psychology. Sorry? I mean, yeah, bro. Crazy? Well, like, you know, Eric Harris and Dylan Claybold, they might have had serious mental health problems, right? And they might have been pretty nuts. But it's like they were still capable of functioning in society. You know what I mean? Like, they went to school. They knew people. They got dressed in the morning. They weren't, like, total raving lunatics. You know what I mean? Mark David Chapman sat outside of John Lennon's apartment with an album waiting to get it autographed, you know? I don't think that Mark David Chapman necessarily hated John Lennon. He just had this twisted psychology. And President Kennedy, JFK's dad, was really clever about how he marketed his kids and how he marketed his family. This probably came from his experiences working in Hollywood, you know, like he really understood, okay, there's this mass media age coming. And in that age, actual reality and like the perceptions about that reality are so like closely intertwined that you can never really separate them. So if you're going to be a public figure, it's really important to capitalize on that and market yourself well. And JFK excelled at that. You know, he was this young, handsome, articulate guy. He has this beautiful wife, these two beautiful, young, adorable looking kids, you know. So it's like they really pumped that up. And in many ways, JFK was the first president of like the modern mass media age. So it's just like just as how Mark David Chapman shot John Lennon to kind of kill this iconic figure. So, too, do I think Lee Harvey Oswald did something very similar. I mean, in sorry, go ahead. The the conspiracy theorist in me is is creeping out slowly. Um, You know, I mean, there's there's alternative theories to to the the the, the, uh, John Lennon shooting. Of course. Of course. Just just like everything else, right? Columbine, even. Um, And it's just it's just hard to nail down when you have you know, of course. Just for example, you know, for Columbine, you know, you got eyewitness, you know, reports of other people in the building shooting, uh, you know, wearing dark clothes up on the roof, you know, just different stuff like that. That, you know, a lot of people, unless you actually really start digging into it, have no clue about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I would imagine like this all goes back to kind of the thing I was talking about at the start, right? Like if if an event in history has this profound effect on our culture, like columbine was a emotionally scarring event like you know like it was a big deal and as well it should be right but it's like if an event has any historical significance there will always be these kind of alternative explanations to it so it's like name the event and there's going to be explanations other than the official one right 
I mean, go back to the psychologist report with Oswald in 1953. What does the psychologist say? She says that this kid is an emotionally detached guy who lives a rich fantasy life focusing on themes of, like, power and omnipotence. And it's like... That was a big deal back then, you know, know, to, to go with these fantastical diagnoses, you know, with, like, Freud and... You know, they really didn't have the clinical... No, I, I agree. Like, in the modern era, our, our understanding of psychology is probably a lot better than it was then. But, I mean, I think even then they could see that there, some, there wasn't something quite right with this kid. I mean, if they just kind of overdiagnosed him, then they did a pretty accurate job, I think. Right. Now, now to get back to the motive for a second, I always, I always like to try to put myself in other people's shoes. You know, to put myself in their situation. So if I go back and I'm Lee Oswald and, you know, okay, things aren't so good with my wife. uh, You know, things aren't so good with my living arrangements. But I have a beautiful two-year, three-year-old daughter. I just had a baby, okay, a month ago. Um. You know, where is my head? Yeah. You know, that that I'm going to throw all this away Mm -hmm. and I'm going to ruin their lives forever so I can take out this president that for whatever reason, um, you know, and a lot of people had reasons to want Kennedy dead. But I don't see what Oswald's reason could have been. Well, like, just has, I think... Unless there's severe right wing, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it doesn't necessarily need to be that he was right wing. I think just as people today, we kind of suffer this handicap that, like, we're modern people living in modern times, looking back on an event that happened half a century ago. So we're looking at, at it with, like, a modern person's perspective, you know? Just as you look at the motivations of somebody, like... Lee Harvey Oswald or Mark David Chapman or anybody else, you you have a difficult time understanding why people would do such a thing. And it's like, that's because you're not a sociopath like those people are. You know what I mean? You can't understand why Oswald would do that because you are not him. And if you were in his situation, you would not have chosen to do that. You know what I mean? It's just like he he has this wife and these kids but that's not going to stop him from running away to mexico to have a little adventure you know and i mean it's like he doesn't really seem to show much concern for providing for his family or taking care of them and it's just like he does really seem to be that emotionally detached individual you know so it's like normal people trying to understand that could never really understand that i feel right all right let's get on to Ownership and possession of the weapon recovered from the crime scenes. Yeah. If somebody gets shot and your gun is found at the scene of that crime, you are like suspect number one. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. And then there's problem, as I alluded to earlier, is the Boone and Weitzman affidavits and Roger Craig all stating that there was a Mauser found up there. Mm Mm-hmm. Now I don't I don't know of any photographic evidence of a Mauser, 
um, the gun I the, the gun I see in in, in like the, you know the Allen photographs and everything appears to be the Carcano to me. Um, you know, but they're not going to be parading the, the, the wrong gun outside. I don't think. But, yeah. You know, was there two guns actually found? I you know it's it, it, if they would have took Oswald to court, you know his lawyers could have been like, well look, these detectives. One, a former uh, gun store owner or a sports, you know, store owner, both testified that they found a Mauser. My client's gun is a Carcano. Yeah. This doesn't make sense. But like, um, if there was a trial, they could just put that detective on the stand. Detective, is this the weapon you saw in the depository that day? Yes, that's it. And did you identify this weapon as a Mauser? Yes, I did. Would you like to amend your statement? Yeah, at the time it looked like a Mauser to me. So I guess I must have just like conjectured about it and it has since been identified as a different type of weapon, you know, like on the stand in a real trial, they could have very easily clarified that. And it's just like, let's let's for a second assume that there was a conspiracy. Why would there be two guns there? There's not supposed to be two guns. You know what I mean? Did the conspiracy drop the ball on that one? You know, they didn't get the Mauser out of there in time for whatever reason. Like, if you're going to have a shooter in the depository, why don't you just have him using Oswald's rifle if you're trying to set him up anyway, you know? And it's... Well, might have sorry, Oswald's rifle in there and actually shot with the Mauser. Or vice versa, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, but then why did they leave the Mauser there? Well, it's not like you can go, go walking out of the building with a with a rifle. Well, like, you take it into the stairwell and you break it down real quick and put it in a backpack or something. Like, you don't leave an, another weapon other than the one you're using to frame the guy that you're framing assembled and at the crime scene where it could potentially be found. Right, and I, well, I've, I've read some... Uh some stuff on this and there was allegedly a, a rifle found on the fifth floor in uh what was it it's like a i don't i don't want to say like a laundry basket but something that something kind of like that in the depository yeah i don't know i've never heard that one dude i don't i'm not familiar with that claim but it's just yep. like anytime you have a claim about something, you know, you have to look for ways to independently and objectively verify it, right? These guys right. claim, I saw a Mauser rifle. I mean, depending on how technical you want to be about it, the Carcano is a Mauser-style bolt-action rifle, right? So if you identify it as a Mauser rifle, that's not necessarily an incorrect identification. It might not be made by the German company Mauser, but the truth is the bolt-action rifle design was perfected by the Mauser brothers in Germany by the end of the 19th century. So it's like any bolt-action rifle produced after that time that's Mauser-style will have similar features, even if it's an Italian rifle, you know? For identifying the rifle, though, I mean, common sense would tell you to look for the stamp on it, you know, to see who made the gun. And just like Roger Craig said, it says right on there, you know, 7.65 Mauser, you know, yeah. there's a famous of him saying, it, you know, it says right on there, Mauser, you know, 7.65 Mauser. Yeah, but it's just like he's made the claim. Well, I saw a rifle and the rifle had a Mauser stamped on it. Okay, great. Where's that rifle? Where's the photographs of it? You know, like. I, I don't have anything to go on other than this one guy making this claim or like these two guys making these claims, you know? There's no way to verify if what they're saying is true or not. No. 
There you go. And which brings us to, to my point, another one of my points, it doesn't necessarily, and it doesn't necessarily help my cause at all. Um, Buell Frazier. Uh-huh. Um, did you get a chance to read that? Yeah, I did. I did. What was your impressions about about Buell Frazier? I think that it's um, it relies on testimonial evidence. You know what I mean? And I, I remember from your podcast with Steve Rowe, you were saying that you recently found out about how unreliable eyewitness accounts can be. Yeah, yeah. So if people just saw, yeah. As far as what people just saw, not not necessarily what they just experienced, you know, mm-hmm. as they're telling what they what just happened, but as far as details when it comes to you know, you know what color shirt the guy was wearing or which way this person walked or you know stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, I can understand what you're saying. But it's like, um, you know, there's the two testimonial accounts from their co-workers at the depository. One of them is like, oh, yeah, I think they were friends. I think he gave him a lift to work every single day. And the other guy was like, you know, I don't really know whether or not they were friends. I don't know how frequently he gave him a lift into work. So it's like you got the two accounts from their co-workers. One of them doesn't really support the claim that they were buddies at all. And the other one says, like, oh, I think I saw him drop him off at the back door of the depository. I mean, it would be different from Frazier's account of what happened. But at the same time, you could also just chalk it up to, like, inconsistencies in eyewitness accounts. You know what I mean? And, I mean, at the end of the day, like, maybe they did have a closer relationship, Lee Oswald and Buell Frazier. But I don't really think so. I mean, I don't really see these guys, like, hanging out and, you know, chilling. Right, I mean, but they're they're basically the same age, uh, you know. They they they're they have a pretty close proximity, you know. I mean, yeah. that, that's at the job at the school book depository, if you believe that story. Yeah, you know, your old sister. Um, so they might have had some interaction. You know, they're around the same age. They're they're both you know southern southern guys like to hunt. You know, Buell had a rifle. You know, and you know if you're giving a guy a ride to work, okay. And it's it's raining outside, and you got to park a damn country mile away from where you got to work. I mean, wouldn't that you know? And Buell seems like a nice guy, you know. Yeah. Is it that far of a stretch to think that he dropped Oswald off at the building? No, I, I don't think it's that far of a stretch at all. But I mean, in the end, I don't really think it makes that much of a difference, other than that his testimony about that would have been like wrong, you know. But I mean, I don't actually believe that that happened. I mean, by the time they got to work, the rain had abated, and he parked where he normally parked. It's like, I, you know, I've had jobs in the past where somebody I work with would either give me a work to or fro, you know, like. If Buddy's giving me a lift home, I don't really care where he parked his car. I'll walk to it with him to get a free ride. You know what I'm saying? So it's just like, even if he did drop him off at the back door of the depository, that still wouldn't necessarily imply anything sinister, you know? But I don't actually think that that happened. So it's just like, it's hard It's hard to hypothesize about it, you know? Right, and... You know, we have Jack Doherty seeing Oswald coming to work, no package. Yep. But we know he had a package because we know that the gun that he owned somehow turned up at his workplace, right? Only because Buell Frazier said he did. Well, then how else did his gun get to work? Maybe Buell Frazier brought it. 
why? How did Beale Frazier know that that gun even existed or where it was? I don't know. There you go. I mean, there's problems, and in, in John Armstrong and Gil Jesus have both pointed out that there's problems with ownership of that rifle, proving it was Oswald. Um, I mean, John Armstrong even went back to tracing it to when it came in off the boat, you know, from Italy, you know, and until it got to Klein's, and <clears throat> excuse me, and it it's hard, you know, to actually prove. Because Oswald didn't get the rifle that he supposedly ordered, um, you know, it's just hard to make that connection. Well, I think, like, um, you know, a lot of the talk tonight has revolved around how different the world was in 1963. And it's like, it just shows you, like, how totally different this society was and how difficult it is to imagine from a modern person's perspective. You know what I mean? Like, he filled out the form and got a money order and sent it into a mail and like six to eight weeks later but he got like a real deal gun in his mailbox you know what i'm saying like a real gun dude that really shoots real bullets you know it's like any 12 year old kid could have just picked up this magazine filled out the ad gotten a money order and they would have sent them a gun in the mail nobody stopped to be like hey is it a smart idea to send firearms across state lines in the mail nobody asked for like a firearms license or a firearms permit there was no waiting period there was no background check there was no way to even make sure that the person you were sending those guns to was actually the person who had even filled out the form like in oswald's case he used a fake name to order them right so it's just like the the paperwork on the gun goes back to his post office box that's in a fake name of a ID he's carrying around with him with his picture on it at the time of his arrest but even if we couldn't trace it to him that way we could still trace it to him via the backyard photographs and his wife's testimony she knew he had a gun when the cops show up at Ruth Payne's house and they're like does your husband have a gun she's like yep it's in the garage which brings us to the problem of the money order why is the money order out of at way out of sequence as to where it should have been if, if it was sold on the day that it was supposedly sold on and also, that money order did not end up where it was supposed to go. There's a certain route, you know, when you present a money order to the bank, it, it needs to be stamped and forwarded on, you know, on and on down the line until it ends up in the, I guess there was a, a post office money order repository where all these things ended up, you know, somewhere in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. And here we have it turning up in Alexandria, Virginia. Okay. Well, it's like, again, if there was a conspiracy, like, they they probably wouldn't have done it that way. I mean, in, in real life, things happen. He got the money order. I mean, he got the gun shipped to him when it wasn't, like, that long before the assassination. It was, like, what, uh, nine months or so, was it? Yeah, I think it was back in February or March. But I don't yeah. think he got it in yeah. Yes, sometime around then. So, like, maybe the money order just hadn't made its full route to where it was eventually supposed to be end end up, you know what I mean? Like, when they went looking for the money order, they found it in the post office files, so they had their copy of it. And it's just like, if you were going to frame this guy and set him up, 
why wouldn't you just order the guns through the mail under the alias of the ID you know he's carrying around, and then the money order and everything will go through the normal processes, and it'll all look legit when we're done. Yeah, I mean, it just ties in with, you know, with the FBI going up to Klein's and not finding anything until they take the microfilm to their headquarters, and all of a sudden, oh, uh, here it is, you know, right here, bam. Yeah, but it's like they could have just faked that evidence to begin with. So it's like if they could have just faked it to begin with, why not fake it better? You know what I mean? Like why not just actually order the guns through the mail and that way there actually will be a record and you don't even have to be like, oh, we're taking your microfilm to go examine it at our lab. But honestly, I don't ever remember hearing that claim either that like the I thought they always found it at Klein's. No, no, they didn't find it at Klein's. They, they took the microfilm with them back to Washington. Really? Yeah. Okay. I got to look into that. But, I mean, at the same time, they're also the FBI. You know what I mean? They're like, hey, a federal crime has taken place here. We are taking possession of this evidence, and we're going to take it back to our labs to examine it. That's like normal, regular things that police forces do. You know what I mean? And it's also like if they were going to frame him for possession of the weapon, a lot of the complaints about the weapon is that, like, it's a piece of junk, it's not particularly good, it couldn't have done the shooting. It's like, why did the conspiracy choose to frame him with such a lame weapon, you know? It's just like in the ad for Kleins that had the Carcano in it, there was a lever action gun, there was an M14, there was an M1. If I was going to frame him, I would have framed him with the M1. It's the weapon he trained on in the Marine Corps, it's the weapon he demonstrated proficiency with. If we had found an M1 on the sixth floor of the depository, nobody would sit there questioning whether or not that gun was capable of doing the shooting, you know? Everybody would accept that. So it's like... Which is Scott, (laughs) to the single bullet theory. Oh, yes. The single bullet theory. SBT. Yes. Yes. Now, I will tell you what my reservations are about the single bullet theory real quick. Okay. And then I'll... And then I'll let you address them. Um, now, as a southern gentleman here who has done some hunting in his time, I will tell you that when a bullet impacts skin, meat, bone, it deforms. No question. I've never seen one go into a deer and not deform to come out looking like a mushroom. And I'm talking just demolished Mm -hmm. if it hits bone. Mm -hmm. If it hits bone, if it hits bone. Well, now the single bullet, the magic bullet, supposedly hit a lot of bones. Yeah, but... By the time, again, you know the question, why does CE-399 not show damage to its nose? If it if it went flying into somebody and it hit, hit a bone, why isn't its nose demolished? I mean, the, the people who planted CE-399, did these people not know that? Did they not know that the bullet is supposed to look really mangled? Well, I, I couldn't tell you. I mean, uh, unless, you know, it allegedly didn't hit bone and Kennedy but it broke Connolly's ribs Mm -hmm. it shattered his wrist and embedded in his thigh Mm -hmm. that's a lot of damage to go through 
especially going through a torso, breaking ribs, mm-hmm. going through a wrist. I mean, there's lots of bones in the wrist. And then finally embedding in the thigh. That bullet, there's no way in hell it would look that good, I don't think. Well, I mean, I, I think one of the really interesting things about CE399 is, like, in all the discussions I've ever had about it, nobody ever really stops to mention the fact that this projectile functioned in, like, exactly the way we would expect it to. Uh, projectiles have a full metal jacket as part of the Geneva Convention. It's uh, it's to try to minimize the amount of damage you do. The, the idea is that if, if the round can stay intact as it goes through your body, if it doesn't, like, hit anything vital, you might just be incapacitated but not injured fatally. So it's like we would expect this round to function in exactly the way it did. We would expect it to go through Kennedy and then come out on the other end. And when they've done testing for this, they find that it's usually as it comes out because of like contact with matter and stuff like that, its telemetry data is all messed up and it starts to yaw and rotate and begin to tumble, if you will. And that also explains why the entry wound on Connolly's back is elongated because the bullet didn't hit him nose on like a regular normal bullet would. It hit him when it was flying sideways. That also explains why there's damage to the side of the round and not the nose. Why is the nose of CE399 not damaged? It's because of the single bullet theory. One of the good hallmarks of a good theory is that it will make predictions, and later on you can verify those predictions. If the single bullet theory is the correct explanation, then the prediction it makes is that the bullet should not show damage to its nose. It should have been tumbling, and it should show damage to its side into its base, which it does. Right, which I could see if it was a pointed nose bullet and not a rounded nose bullet. I mean, a rounded nose bullet would tend to mushroom a lot easier than a pointed nose bullet. I mean, you know, the pointed nose bullets are are designed to penetrate and keep on going. Mm -hmm. These rounded nose bullets can frag. They're very, you know, they fragment very easily. Oh, yeah. If, If they hit bone, like they'll fragment like mad crazy. Yeah. I mean, they're not they're not very Geneva Convention friendly. (laughs) Um, and what was I going to say about this? Oh, Connolly, you know, Connolly maintained his whole life that he was hit by a different bullet than, than, than hit Kennedy because he maintained that, you know, when, as he was, he heard the gunshot and as he was turning, that's when he got hit. That's when he got hit. Yep. He always maintained that it wasn't the same bullet. It's um, anecdotal testimonial evidence, so it's like there's, there is a way to verify it, you know what I mean? Like The testimony of John Connolly doesn't necessarily conflict with a single bullet theory. He just happens to you know, mention, well, I believe that I got hit with a separate round, but it's just like he didn't. The first shot missed, the second shot's the single bullet, and the third shot hit Kennedy. So it's like even his testimony, it still confirms what we think happened. I mean, like, imagine you're out somewhere and somebody starts bailing spray and a bunch of people get hit. And later on, they're asking you about it. And you think, well, I got hit with another bullet than somebody else might have gotten hit with. But later on, it turns out that that person happened to be standing in front of you. And even though you thought you got hit with the other bullet, the truth is that bullet hit them, went through them and then hit you. You just didn't notice it at the time. 
this is especially easy to happen if you're both like facing the same direction and you can't see the guy behind you. Right, but Kennedy was already clutching his throat at this point when Conley turned around and looked. And when he was turning back, that's when he got hit. I mean, that's when we see blood on his chest. Well, and... I'm if if we're talking about the Zapruder film, it's like there might be I mean, when you watch it, from my perspective, honestly, it appears to happen simultaneously. Like, they both appear to react simultaneously. But if you really want to break it down by, like, frame by frame, it's like, this is a difference of a few fourteenths of one second. Do you know what I mean? In real life, that's pretty much instantaneously. If subject A reacts, and then subject B eight fourteenths of a second later reacts, I think it's fair to say that A and B reacted simultaneously. All right, I got you. I got you. Yeah. But it, be, it's it's sorry, it's hard go to ahead. say with 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 the Zapruder film being our only reference. Um, you know, and there's there's of course questions about that as well. I mean, there's questions with every every aspect, Scott. Of I mean, course. we could argue all night about of damn course. near everything. You know, yeah. uh, and then you know, never even mind the Kennedy assassination. We could even go on and talk about other topics and alternative versions of them. You know what I mean? Like I subscribe to the official historical account. I subscribe to what it says in the history books. In the history books, it says that Lee Harvey Oswald did this and he did it on his own by himself, but that a huge conspiracy theorist culture surrounds this event and that's part of our cultural history here in North America. I totally agree with that. You know what I mean? That's that's pretty much what happened but it's like it's so not a, nothing, is nothing a conspiracy to you i mean it, oh no like there's definitely been conspiracies you know what i mean but it's like when a conspiracy theory is proven it's not really the conspiracy theory anymore it's become like recorded history there was a time when the idea that the president was involved with the watergate break-in was this crazy conspiracy theory but it actually wasn't a conspiracy theory it turned out to be true now we just record that as like regular normal history but the thing about the the single bullet theory is it's not like there's a better explanation out there that i could potentially adopt you know what i mean it's just like, without the single bullet theory, I can't explain to you what happened. I can't explain how these wounds happened or where one wound starts or what another wound ends. We need extra shots, extra bullets. There's all kinds of missing evidence. You know what I mean? Like the single bullet theory actually provides a working explanation using the evidence that we have available. It doesn't provide like a not working explanation that uses evidence we just assume exists. Well... I'm pretty, pretty, pretty sure, um, at least according, you know, from the work of Douglas Weldon and, and, and people like that, that, that there was a hole in the in the uh, windshield, of, you know, a bullet hole. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's been pretty much uh, corroborated by a lot of people um, that saw it firsthand at Parkland, and and you know, the guy that that, that drove this thing up to Detroit. Um, to get it stripped down, to get the limo stripped down, um, and and the workers up there at the at the uh, at the plant, you know, if you have an extra bullet hole in that window, you know, and and then you have a lot of people saying at Parkland that that throat wound was a wound of entry initially, um, you know, then you get you know you got to start thinking, then you got you know, 
57 witnesses who said they, they, they heard a shot from the uh, grassy knoll. Yeah, it's it's all eyewitness accounts that can't really be collaborated, you know what I mean? Like, the hole in the windshield, how can I, sitting here 50 years later, know whether or not that's true? You know, I just have to take people's words for it, and I really don't like to do that, because that's how you go down the garden path, you know what I'm saying? It's just like, there could have been a hole in the windshield, but I mean, it could have been a fragment from the headshot... I guess that would really be the only explanation for it. I do think there was damage to the windshield of the car, but I don't think it was like a through-and-through hole. I think it was just broken, shattered glass from like a fragment from the headshot or something like that. But it's just like, if there was a shot from the front, how could it have hit Kennedy in the throat and not in the head? You know what I mean? Like, you would probably select a pretty good shooter to do that shooting. So it's like, I don't understand how you could accidentally hit him in the throat and not in the head. But at the same time, it's just like, okay, what kind of bullet was that? What caused that bullet to stop? Where did that bullet go? Where's the exit wound for that bullet? You know what I mean? It doesn't make sense. When Kennedy was brought into Parkland, he was on his back, face up. They were operating on him, trying to save him. It, I can very easily understand how in that moment uh, the doctors felt that that was an entry wound because the projectile went through his neck without really making any kind of bony contact. So it was like a clean entry, clean exit. You know, It wasn't like a regular, normal, regular exit wound. Right. Then, then how, you know, if we got a nice, clean exit, how do we get the bullet tumble? Well, because any any time you're shooting, like sharpshooters are always taught to take a clear shot because bullets are very small, very light supersonic projectiles. You know what I mean? So it's like any small change in um, its ballistic arc can cause problems with the bullet's telemetry. So it's like sharpshooters, they don't even like to shoot through the glass in a window pane you always want to take a clean shot so that there's nothing in between you and the target you know think about the incident of the walker shooting like oswald should have gotten that guy it was an easy enough shot and he was close enough but because the bullet went through the window the contact with physical matter affected its telemetry and it caused it to go tumbling off and barely missed him I mean, when, when we've simulated this, when we've tried to recreate the path of the single bullet, we often find that this happens. As the projectile travels through the first target, it comes out tumbling. That's just something that happens when bullets in flight make contact with, like, physical matter. Right, I just don't, I just don't see it, how traveling that fast, if it makes a clean exit, it's only got to go a foot. And in that small amount of space, in that short amount of time on a clean exit i just don't know how it could tumble like that it's a very small supersonic projectile and when you have that much energy going in the system like small changes in it can produce dramatic results you know like as it goes through his neck it's going to come into contact with skin and muscle and tissue and on its way out it's going to suddenly be back in the open air with none of those things exerting pressure or force on it and just that alone i think could probably cause it to tumble i mean like we've we've seriously tried to recreate this shot and while i think it's impossible to ever really exactly replicate the flight path of this bullet as it's probably very impossible to replicate the flight path of any bullet i mean we we have seen that when you put a round through something it usually comes out tumbling that's just the way it is you know yeah but now the warren commission placed the back wound pretty pretty low on the back i mean it wasn't like up near the neck area so then you're talking about a bullet 
going uphill as it enters its back, exiting the throat, then coming back downhill into into that. I mean, they call it the magic bullet for a reason. Well, conspiracy theorists call it the magic bullet. People that believe in the official explanation call it the single bullet theory. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, the magic bullet is not a label that people who support that conclusion gave to it, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, there's a, it's referring to how it acted, I guess you could say. Yeah, but I mean, the, the Warren well, Commission not... doesn't really say that, right? Like, it's it that's what the conspiratorial interpretation of it is, that if we use the holes in the back of the jacket or whatever the bullet would have to go up and then go out and then go back down and then turn left and then turn right i mean I, i'm talking warren commission reenactment they placed that dot on that dude's back oh yeah you did yeah that's where it was that, oh god that's such a great photograph man it just shows you like how how wrong it can be you know I mean, uh, one of the things Carmine once mentioned was that they didn't have the exact same car, which is just sloppy. They totally should have had the exact same car. One of the moments in my own personal story of this, when I became a lone nutter, it was the time I saw a photograph of the empty car. And you can see that the back seat is a lot higher than the seat that Connolly was in. Once I saw that, I kind of really suddenly, it clicked in my mind. You know what I'm saying? I was just like, this this totally makes sense. It was that Kennedy was seated above and behind him and Connolly was seated lower and in front of him. So it's like it doesn't necessarily need to go up and then come back down. It's just one straight thro- shot through both targets. And also you add to the fact that Elm Street has a, dec- a decreasing slope as you go down it, right? So it's like if you're on an elevated position looking down into the plaza, the fact that the street slopes down is going to assist in that. By the time Oswald put the round through Kennedy and into Connolly, Connolly was probably like barely visible from Oswald's perspective. Yeah, I just don't, I, I, I just don't see how a shot from 60 feet up, you know, we're talking at a downward trajectory, okay? I forget exactly how many degrees it is, but... I think it's 32. I, mean, yeah, I think. About, I'm not sure on that. You know, it's 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 steep. I mean, you're talking to somebody shooting from 60 feet up into a back, okay? It would have had to hit something to deflect back up out of the throat. I mean, in order for that bullet to come out his neck, okay, it would have had to have been fired from way lower position, I think, Um. Well, like, if it, if, if the, it entered, we're even close to the upper back. You know what I mean? Well, like, the wound, it, it's in the neck. There's no damage to the thoracic cavity. Like, if the wound was in the back and something caused that bullet to stop, there would have to be damage, right? There would have to be damage to, like, the internal organs, damage to the lungs, uh, broken ribs or something. But there's none of that. You know what I mean? The pathologist who conducted the president's autopsy, they think that the missile fully transited his neck. And I mean, they're the experts, right? So it's like, if they think that that's what happened, why should I, a medical layman, doubt that? I mean, if they'd have been allowed to, uh, you know, (laughs) go into his neck in in, uh, thoracic cavity and explore, maybe they would have found something different, but... Well, they definitely they, examined the thoracic cavity because they removed the internal organs, right? 
but it's like um, dissecting the track of the bullet wound that probably would have required removing the president's head from the rest of his body. So I can reasonably understand why they would be very hesitant to do something like that. That's very extreme. You know what I mean? Maybe, but that's a whole yeah. other whole another issue. We'll yeah. But uh, honestly, it's, get... it's just when I look at it. I have to provide a working explanation for my own, like, understanding. You know, what, what happened here? How did this happen? How did these wounds get inflicted? With the single bullet theory, I feel I have a reliable, understandable way of explaining that. But if I reject the single bullet theory, I would just have to shrug my shoulders and say, honestly, I have no clue how to describe what I'm observing here. So, you know... How do you explain the reaction immediately after the shots of everybody rushing up the hill to the grassy knoll? Well, like, um, if you were, you know, when, when you look at the eyewitness accounts from Dealey Plaza, you pretty much see what you would expect to see, right? Like a bunch of people witness this sudden and unexpected event and their accounts differ. You know, uh, I mean... Yeah, but everybody was rushing for that no. It wasn't. Yeah, but you know, all all it takes is like one or two people to start rushing up there. Hey, those people are running over there. What's going on? Let's go see. And then more people start going. Then more people, more people, more people. I mean, some people say that they heard shots coming from that direction. Some people say that they heard shots coming from other directions. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you're there and you're an eyewitness, you're probably gonna hear the crack of the bullet as it goes by because the bullet's a supersonic projectile. It's faster than the speed of sound. This is like a little mini sonic boom coming off of it. It's like the crack of a whip. You hear a whip crack because the tip is moving faster than the speed of sound. What you're hearing is a little miniature breaking of the sound barrier. But with the rifle shot, you're going to hear that crack, and then like a fraction of a second later, you're going to hear the report of the gas and heat and explosion that pushed that round out of the barrel. So it's like when you're in an acoustically complicated environment like Dealey Plaza where there's plenty of hard surfaces for sound waves to bounce off of, it's very easy to be confused about these things, number of shots, uh, location from where shots originated, et cetera, et cetera, you know? But you know what, Scott? The HSCA Uh-oh. determined using acoustical evidence that there was a shot from the knoll. They themselves said that they weren't really that sure about it. <laughs> they said there was like it was just as likely to be true or to not be true. But I mean, they also concluded that if there was a shot from the knoll that it missed. So we're still looking at the only hits we can verify are the ones from behind and above. And we're still looking at the single bullet theory. I understand like a lot of modern conspiratorial claims about the shot from the knoll is that it was like some kind of diversionary shot, but I don't really understand why they would need that if the only other shots that hit were from Oswald's position, you know what I mean? Why bother having a guy there to fire a diversionary shot? Like if you're going to take the time and the energy to put the assets in place to have a shooter on Kennedy at the knoll then like why don't you just have an actual real shooter on the knoll why have one shooting blanks you know that doesn't really make any sense yeah. all right let's get into this last point and then we'll wrap it up scott okay all right sorry let me just quickly inject something about the uh, acoustic evidence uh yeah. 
The Kennedy Half Century by Larry J. Saboto. I'd really recommend that book. Uh, Saboto is a political science professor at the University of Virginia. He writes a really good book. It's not necessarily about the Kennedy assassination. I mean, obviously it is, right? You can't talk about JFK without talking about that. But it's like it's more about like the cultural significance of President Kennedy's presidency and how later presidents kind of appropriated his words and imagery. And as part of his book, he actually did a modern study of the acoustic evidence by this firm, Sona Analysts, and he released his report on that. They conclude that most of the acoustic evidence came from a cop that wasn't even in the motorcade. So it's like we were all wrong about that. You know what I mean? The House Select Committee was wrong when they thought it was the one cop. The lone nutters explaining it later on were wrong when they thought it was another cop in the motorcade. It turns out that it was actually a cop who was at the trademark. And it's like he was so far away that what you're hearing on the acoustic evidence could not possibly be gunfire. So it's like even though we kind of always suspected it's wrong, in the modern era, there's actually been a little bit more work on that. So, yeah, if you're interested in that, I'd recommend that. Check that out. Cool. Yeah, definitely. All right, let's get to our last point here. It is my point. Um, Oswald is some kind of intelligence asset. And what I mean by that, Scott, is we have talk of, I think it came from Wagoner Carr, that Oswald was an FBI informant, and he even gave Oswald's FBI informant number. Okay, first and mm-hmm. foremost. Then we have Oswald getting arrested in New Orleans and asking... Yeah, he asked to see FBI guy. The FBI. And we have Oswald in Dallas going to visit the FBI office and uh, attempting to speak to uh, James Hosty and leaving him a note. Um, now we can assume that it was to, hey, stop bothering my wife. Um, but if that's all it was, why did they destroy it? And and what I'm getting at here is, you know, if, you know, he even said that, you know, Oswald was making $200 a month as an informant. Okay. And all the connections, you know, that Oswald was associated with in New Orleans. You have Guy Bannister, who was a former FBI. Um, David Ferry has CIA connections. Clay Shaw had CIA connections. Uh, Jack Martin had CIA connections. Thomas Beckham asserted he had CIA connections. Um you know, we can go on and on and on. I mean, it's so is is he the odd man out here or what What the hell was going on? Well, like, I don't really think there's any proof that he was tied to any of those people. You know what I mean? They're just more claims about people he might have been tied to. And like, yeah, Clay Shaw had connections to the CIA, but it was really like only in the most roundabout and indirect way. He reported to the domestic contacts division the exact same way that like 10. <coughs> sorry. Tens of uh, thousands of Americans who traveled abroad in that period did, you know. It was uh, an overt agency of the CIA. It wasn't very covert at all. <coughs> Sorry, right, dude, I got a bit of a cough. I know, I know. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I mean, then, then they hit it pretty well during the Garrison investigation with, you know, as, as any of his ties to the CIA. And then, of course, it came out later on that, you know, he, he did have ties. And ties are ties. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was in a position, you know, 
I mean, who's the head of the trademark? You know, he he traveled a lot. He he would have been. He would have been a good asset to report to the yeah. CIA domestic contacts division, eh? Exactly. Yeah, there you go. I mean, it's it, just like uh, I don't really know how to phrase it. It's just like. You know, why would we ever assume that Lee Harvey Oswald was anything other than what we thought he was? Harold Weisberg is a, a much revered figure in uh, Kennedy assassination conspiracy theorist culture. And this guy had like a ridiculous collection of all kinds of stuff. And people would often in the age before the Internet, they would often make pilgrimages to his home to talk to him and to share their ideas and stuff before that guy died. He said that after all these – I'm kind of paraphrasing. I don't know his exact quote. He said that after all these years, it's tempting to conclude that Oswald was working for somebody. But if he ever actually was, there's no record of that. And if he ever received any payment for working for somebody, there's no record of that either. I mean at some point or another, Buddy would have had to have gotten a paycheck, right? So it's like where's the record of any of this? If he made any money, if he was making like $200 a month or whatever, being an FBI informant, where's that money? You know, what happened to it? Where did it go? What did he spend it on? It's just like other than these claims, there isn't really all that much to go on that he was connected to anybody. Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty specific claim, you know, for a DA of Texas to make, you know, Wagner Carr. I think he was the state's attorney general or something like that. He went to... Well, it's like, do we have that document that he claims to have seen where FBI, like Lee Harvey Oswald, is listed by name and he has like an FBI agent number or informant number or anything like that? I haven't seen it. Yeah, neither have I. But if, if it if it if there is one, I, I doubt we ever would see it. <laughs> you well, know? it's like, how did he see it then? Was the FBI like, oh, hey, by the way, uh, a district attorney here, take a look at this. Oh, wait, we probably shouldn't have shown you that. Okay, never mind. We've got to destroy this thing now, you know? I mean, it's it's just claims, you know? It's claim after claim after claim, and it's just like it, – it, it's not really, I feel, like my responsibility so much to refute claims as to provide an argument for why I believe the ones that I do. You know, in the end, it doesn't really matter – what you actually believe what matters is why you believe it you know do you believe things for good reasons or do you believe them for bad reasons right and that's a good way to put it and you know i think that's what it all boils down to you know i you know i've i guess i have a more skeptical mindset um i guess when it comes to believing authority and 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 believing everything that that what you know what somebody tells me I like to, you know, check it out for myself, mm. see what, you know, dig up, what I can find. And like, it's not just with the JFK assassination either. It's, it's, you know, it's other things too, like you were referring to earlier. You know, but I think it, that's what it all boils down to is, you know, where, you know, where you are on, on your personal journey uh, of trying to figure this thing out. You know, this is, a, it's just a hobby. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just. Well, like for a lot of people, it's way, way more personally involved than just a hobby. You know what I mean? Like I'll I'll always remember the end of Oliver Stone's JFK. It's such a great emotional, dramatic moment when Kevin Costner as Jim Garrison, he's given this closing argument and he goes, you know, we're all Hamlets in this country, children of a slain father whose killers still inherit the throne. It's like I 
I think a lot of people kind of do see themselves that way. You know what I mean? A lot of people are on this crusade for justice for their murdered father, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, and a lot of people view it as, you know, the start of of, of the bad days, you know, mm-hmm. when, you know, when we lost, you know, our country lost our innocence and, you know, these, these people in power that hold the real power in this country, not just... Yeah, that's you know. when they really began to take over, you know what I mean? I've often, I, I mean, there, there's an easy equation you can make it to 9-11, you know what I mean? Like, it's such a similar type of event, you know? 9-11, that was my generation's November 22nd, you know? Right. My generation got to experience some crazy event like that. And it's just like, the 1960s were a much more simpler time. It was a time when... Nobody thought twice about the president making a public appearance in a major metropolitan area in a parade with a convertible and the parade route is published like days in advance. Nobody thought, hey, this is a ridiculous, dangerous thing to do. Nobody thought, hey, sending guns across state lines to people who haven't even provided a photo ID. There's nothing ridiculously dangerous about that. People, it was a pre-Kennedy assassination society. And in that society, they did not have the example of the Kennedy assassination to point to and say, okay, that's why we can't do things like that anymore, because stuff like that can happen. You know what I mean? A pre-9-11 society didn't have 9-11 to point to and be like, hey, look, we got to change the way we do things, because if we keep doing them the way we're doing them, stuff like this can happen, you know? Right. You know, and then, you know, like you say, you look at, at uh, you know, 9-11 and you see you know, the project for a new American century and, and mm-hmm. said that, you know, that they wanted to move into the Middle East and, and have an, they have a certain agenda they want to accomplish there. They can only be uh, fully realized with, you know, a new Pearl Harbor style attack on the on, on America to where they could garner the support to do what they wanted to do over in the Middle East. Yeah, exactly. It's It's just like the way that an industrialized America in the 1930s was looking for a way to rebound from the Great Depression, and they needed this huge mechanized war that would allow them to crank up their industry and start producing and have an economy again and get the economy moving, and that's why they staged the false flag at Pearl Harbor, right? Yeah, I mean, it it seems like that's what fuels this country, is war. I mean, really? Well, like... fuels the industry the defense industry and and it just trickles down from there yeah this this is like a a well-documented historical phenomenon you know what i mean during the modern era we lived uh during the pax americana the american peace the time when america was this super strong international player that could secure the stability of the international system but you know you go back into history and you see other examples of this before the pax americana there was the pax britannica and it was a very similar kind of thing you know this super powerful militarized country kind of establishing order in the international system and then you go back even further in history and before that it was the pax romana when it was the roman empire you know what i mean so it's like there's always kind of been these powerful actors in international affairs, and these powerful actors often have huge military resources, and that very much features prominently in the economies of their societies, you know what I mean? But whether it actually ends up producing events like a Pearl Harbor or a 9-11 that are done purposely for sen- a sinister reason is that's like 
wherein you find the conspiracy theories and alternative explanations for history. Right. Did, you know, did they did they did they make it happen or did they did it actually happen the way they said it happened or is it all just like smoke and mirrors? You know what I mean? Or did they just get lucky and, and take advantage of a situation that presented itself to further their agenda? Yeah. And I mean, you know, one of the things that I think people don't really stop to think about is like how the stuff we believe in. How does that fit into what we already know about the nature of reality? You know what I mean? Like take away the sensationalist aspect of who it was that got killed and tell me the story of what happened on November 22nd. You know what I mean? Crazy guy took his gun to work and shot somebody with it. Have we ever heard that story before? Yes, we've heard that story many times in our history. And it's like, what's more likely? Is it more likely that these sinister elements would stage events and like so brilliantly planned and flawlessly executed that they could totally get away with this crazy Byzantine scheme? Or is it just that some stuff happened and the people in power are like, hey, here's a chance to capitalize on it and spread our agenda? I mean, the the project for the new American century, they openly talked about, you know, without a new Pearl Harbor, we're not going to be able to do stuff like this. And then something happened and they capitalized on that. But is it that they caused that to happen? Or is it just that they took advantage of a situation? Yeah, or is it just a coincidence that all the ones on that committee were part of the whole Bush? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I mean, um, it wasn't a coincidence. Bush was president. So as president, he got to exert a lot of influence over who would be on the committee in exactly the same way that, like, Lyndon Johnson got a lot of influence over who would be on the Warren Committee. You know what I mean? Well, that committee, the the Project for New American Century, that was a, that was in like the mid '90s, wasn't it? That's before Bush was even in office. I I I, I think it goes back to then. I, I mean, it, it was kind of this uh, post Cold War thing where America was emerging as this unchallenged superpower, and a lot of political groups were kind of casting about with that, being like, okay, well, where do we go from here? You know, the Project for a New American Century was probably just one of those ideas. Yeah, like Operation Northwoods. I mean, you know, it, it's not out. That's what makes things like that not out of the realm of possibility for me. When you see how diabolical and dastardly that, that our, our own government could be to further an agenda, mm-hmm. and we know that they, you know, didn't actually go through with that one, but. Yeah. But I mean, they, they sat there and gamed out that scenario, and that's really telling. I mean, honestly, like. When you're a government, you have to game out all kinds of scenarios. Like, that's pretty dastardly, Operations Northwoods. Yeah, but, I mean, it's also pretty dastardly to, like, launch a surprise attack with nuclear weapons against the Soviet Union. I'm sure they had all kinds of different scenarios for how they would do that. You know what I mean? It's just like, (coughs) how can I explain this? It's like, if, if they were really going to do something like that, I don't really think they could ever realistically get away with it. I mean, look at the history of the American Republic. We know things about the American government. We know about Operation Northwoods. The American government couldn't cover up its involvement at the Bay of Pigs. It couldn't cover up its involvement in these ridiculous Looney Tunes tag team mafia plots to get Castro, you know, exploding cigars, poison pens, poison clamshells, poison diving suits. They couldn't cover up their involvement with illegal weapons deals with Iran. They couldn't cover up their illegal support of the Nicaraguan Contras. Bill Clinton couldn't cover up cheating on his wife. You know what I mean? 
It's like, how could they possibly have covered up something so intricate and elaborate as this? It strains credulity. That's a very good point. And a good point to end on, because you know what, Scott, you know, as much as we are come from a different mindset, I do enjoy talking to you and I do enjoy hearing about these, these, you know, a, di a different point of view on, on, you know, different aspects of the assassination. Um, you know, even though we come at it from two different, two different sides, you know, we see it two different ways through two different lenses, you know, I can appreciate where you're coming from because, you know, hearing you form your opinions and, and how you get to where you are, you know, I understand it a lot more than I did before we actually had this conversation. Yeah, you know, I, I'm all for having discussions about stuff, you know, like it's important to discuss the things you believe, but perhaps even more importantly, why you believe them. It's good fun, dude. I really enjoy your podcast. I enjoy listening to it. I recommend it to everybody. You should listen to the Lone Gunman podcast with your boy, Rob Clark. It's good stuff. If you're interested in the Kennedy assassination, honestly, there's no reason not to listen to it. It's a guy chilling out talking about the Kennedy assassination, you know? And it's just like, we all have this kind of shared interest in this famous historical event. And within the context of that, you will find people that are all over the spectrum, people that are on the right, people that are on the left, people that are conspiracy theorists, people that are low nutters, people that are varying shades and degrees of that sort of thing. You know what I mean? So it's like it's whenever you talk to somebody, I, I think I really like history because history, it's the story about how we collectively made this journey from like ignorance to knowledge, from immaturity to maturity. And it kind of like mirrors what happens in our own personal lives. In our own personal lives, we too make a journey from like immaturity to maturity, from ignorance to knowledge. And along the way, there's all these kind of bumps and detours and stuff. And it's like... History can be a very intimate and personal thing. And when you're talking to somebody who's a real nerd for this stuff, their particular passions and convictions show. And it's always a really interesting discussion. Oh, most definitely. And I really appreciate you coming on, man. I was, I was, I was, you know, when I called out for Lone Nutters before to come on the show, I mean, and, and like you just said, you know, it, there's varying degrees. And, you know, I was expecting, you know, a, uh, a David Von Peen approach, you know, or these people just get nasty for no reason. And then, you know, when you ask for, you know, where they're coming from, they just, you know, it's just an attack, a personal attack. And, you know, they, they just don't explain it as well as you did. And I really appreciate you coming on. I, and I know my listeners will definitely learn something, you know, whether, whether they agree with me, whether they agree with you, I don't think very many of them will agree with me. <laughs> you know, dude, you never know. You I mean, never you know. know. You never know. I've seen it happen. I've seen people start out as conspiracy theorists and end up low nutters. And I mean, that's my own personal experience. And I'm sure that's been the experience of a lot of low nutters. Yeah. I mean, that's Steve Rowe. I mean, yeah. Fred James is, yeah. a, is a recent convert, you know, and, and I'm sure a lot of other people are too, you know, because there gets to a point, you know, in, in your research and looking at this case to where you, you know, you got to make a decision and come down on one side or the other. And, you know, we're all at different, we're all at different points in this journey. And, uh, 
you know, to where we're getting to. And knowledge only helps. Yeah. You know? Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you really want to put your, if you really want to own your convictions and you really want to put your beliefs to the test, you don't sit there talking to people who already agree with you. You know what I mean? You go out and find somebody that does not agree with you. Because you know what? They're going to show you, okay, here's all the weak points, you know? Here's all the places where objections and criticisms can be made. And in doing that, you really get a good critical evaluation of your own thoughts and beliefs about stuff. I think that's probably one of the reasons why I like talking to conspiracy theorists, because they don't share my opinions. And I want them to, I want to be like, okay, you know what, dude? Tell me about why this is wrong. Tell me about where the weak points in this is, because I want to make sure that the things that I believe are actually an accurate reflection of reality, you know, and not just what I want to believe. Right, right. Now, if if something were to come out that you just couldn't overlook, you know, to change <laughs> mind, <laughs> you know, if there if there was something to come out, you know, next week that was just like, you know, one of those holy shit moments and you were like, oh, my God, this changes everything. Are you open minded enough to accept that? Oh, of course. Of course. I couldn't possibly imagine what that could be, though. But I mean, the second definitive proof for the existence of this conspiracy shows up. But that's the second I'll start believing it. I mean, I can deal with being wrong. Obviously, I've been wrong about something in my in my life, you know what I mean? It's when I was a conspiracy theorist and I believe the Kennedy assassination was a conspiracy. I wasn't dumb. I wasn't necessarily naive. I just didn't have as access to as much information as I have now. And now that I have access to more information, my opinion on that has changed. You know, it's like right now we think that Mercury is the planet closest to the sun. But if it turns out in the future that there's actually like some super small planet that we've never seen before, that's orbiting closer to the sun. I'll change my opinion about that too. You know what I mean? Like there, there's nothing wrong with being wrong, but like what you should try is to make sure that if you are wrong, you're wrong for the right reasons. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, I'm just saying, you know, say somebody has a, you know, a home movie, <laughs> You know, take it, take it from the grassy knoll and, and you know, he turns around and, and catches the shooter shooting a rifle. Oh, yeah. You know, just that, something <laughs> out of the blue, you know, it's totally be like, oh, my God. You yeah, know? yeah. Like, honestly, if if I wake up tomorrow and the headline on the new, the newspaper says Kennedy assassination proven to be a conspiracy, I'm definitely going to stop and pop a dollar in and grab a copy of that newspaper. You know what I mean? Like the second anybody shows up and makes the claim, Hey, we've got really good definitive proof that this was a conspiracy here. I'm always interested in hearing about that. But at the same time, you know, when you're aware of the Kennedy assassination as like a cultural phenomenon, when you have a, your own personal interest in it. The truth is that these are claims that have already been made many times in the past. You know, many times in my own personal life, I have heard somebody say something to the effect of, hey, we've pretty much proven that this was a conspiracy, you know, and it, it's never panned out, you know. So if it ever did pan out, yes, I would totally believe it. But until that day comes, I don't think that belief in the Kennedy assassination conspiracy is really that justified. And there we agree to disagree, Scott. <laughs> and uh, you know we've been we've been running here, coming up on two hours, man. This gonna be a long one. Yeah. Well, you know, I I hope people like it, and I 
I hope it encourages people to have a discourse, you know, like talk to people that don't agree with you about stuff. And honestly, like, I, I don't think any person could ever fully separate themselves from their emotions. And I mean, it's important to be passionate about your convictions and to be passionate for the things you believe. But at the same time, you know, don't let your emotions get in the way of your logic. Don't become so personally and emotionally attached to an idea or a concept, especially when it's like something so abstract as a famous historical event that it like upsets you personally. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like Richard Sharnan and Ralph Sinkay. <laughs> <laughs> no, like you don't want to be out there ranting about how this person's a mathful big troll or that person's a page shill. You know what I mean? It's like you and me. We we think differently about the Kennedy assassination, but the at the end of the day, we're both nerds for the Kennedy assassination. So it's like, why not just chill out and talk to each other? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And totally. that, at least for me, you know, it's. That's the way that, you know, I push myself and challenge myself to, to, to learn as much as I can, as many angles of things as, as I personally can. And, you know, it's good to talk to somebody with a difference of opinion every once in a while just to just to remind you, you know, where you're at, what you're doing, what you're focusing on and what you need to focus on, uh, you know, to, to strengthen your argument on, on either side, really. Mm hmm. Just like uh, the book of Proverbs says, just as iron sharpens iron, so too does one man sharpen another, right? Hey. There you go, buddy. You got it. <laughs> All right, Scott. I think that's going to do it for tonight. All right, buddy. This was lots of fun. Eh? I had a good time doing this. I think people will enjoy this and get a kick out of it. I mean, I know the time's flown by for me. I mean, I was oh, like, yeah. damn. Already? Yes. Sorry, buddy. You're like chilling out at a parking lot talking to me on a cell phone. You know what I mean? It's all good. This is, I'm in my element here. Yeah, man. Obviously. Chilling with the rain and, and dead fish on the ground in the parking lot. So. <laughs> nice, nice. Only people on Facebook will get that. See, Rob Clark's a real deal Kennedy assassination researcher, <laughs> people. He's ready to make personal sacrifices to battle the low nuttery. That's right. I got my tinfoil hat on and <laughs> I'm grid. They're never going to find me. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> All right, Scott. Will you hang on a line for me real quick? Yeah, sure. I'm going to talk about. Wow. This has been a good one, people. I hope you enjoyed it. I know I did. And, and once again, thank you, Scott, for coming on and, and talking to me about this stuff. This son of a bitch is in the can, up to the satellite, beamed down directly to your ears, people. This is your boy Rob Clark on the Lone Gummin Podcast. Out.
You do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. You do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only.